0: keep your eyes in John chapter 1 and just listen to these words from uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens foggier yet and colder piercing, searching biting cold if the good saint Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that instead of using his familiar weapons then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose the owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of God rest ye merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. Ah, It's a great scene. Dickens here, he's, he, he brilliantly paints this, this icy picture, you just see the graphic words that he uses here, and he paints this picture for the reader and he gives these descriptions of the cold and of this caroler and he's what he's doing is he's showing the the irony of this scene you have outside in the, in the blustery miserable gnawing cold you have this poor but warm hearted cheerful caroler and sheltered inside with a fire sits this rich but cold hearted cantankerous Scrooge and so their their attitudes on either side of the door, they defy their circumstances. The poor Caroler out in the frigid cold presumably should be miserable, but he's not. The rich Ebenezer inside by the fire should be merry, but he's not. Now, presumably, the Caroler's song points to the reason. That for his merriment, the next line he would have sung, and we just sang a moment ago, is if Scrooge hadn't cut him off, was Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. <laughs> so, the, the irony and the imagery of this, of this caroler, I think it should resonate with us. We, we can have warm, hopeful, joyful hearts, even when we're living in cold, dark, difficult, Days. I think we've been seeing that together over these last several weeks. Even when we're facing the harsh realities of, of life and difficulty in this fallen world, remembering that Christ our Savior has been born. Remembering that He was born to save us from Satan's power. When we had gone astray, He came to save us from our sins. Remembering this, not, not just as some passing thought that we, 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 we just kind of warms us for a moment for a few days around Christmas time. No, this is to us like the sun. It gives light and it gives life to us. All the time, it sustains us no matter what kind of difficulties we're facing. I think of Mary's song so many songs connected with Christmas and scripture and certainly for us and all these songs that have been, been, church has been singing for hundreds of years but Mary's song she, she, those words and we won't look at it all right now but it was not sung in a time of, of luxury and ease and comfort no it was, she was facing the certain reality of very hard times ahead for her being pregnant without a husband as a woman in first century Palestine it it bore this stigma of of adultery and, and the possibility of death. And yet Mary sang. Why did she sing? Because the angel gave her a mighty story. The angel said, You will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and his kingdom will never end. So she sang. Listen, the comfort and joy promised by the angel, the comfort and joy proclaimed in this carol that we sang just a moment ago, it's not just this outburst of seasonal cheer, this holly jolly Christmas. And it's not a call to to some kind of passive, grin-and-bear contentment. Just bite your lip and suck it up and and smile and say Merry Christmas. That's not it at all. No, comfort in the Christmas story, it comes from the encounter of knowing hope. A person in, in the midst of our despair... And it comes from knowing joy, the the startling wonder of finding that hope has drawn near to us. That's what this is telling us. So whether you're in the midst of warmth and light right now or in darkness and cold right now, God has opened up for you and me the way of comfort and joy through the incarnation. Yes, our world is dark, but the light has come. Light has come into the dark. The, as Zechariah prophesied after John's birth and looking to the Messiah who would come and just in, in, in he knew would come, he says, the sunrise from on high. The sunrise from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is where we are. Darkness. We face the shadow of death. Some of you have felt that in, in, in profound ways this year. To guide our feet into the way of peace. This is what we're talking about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, we have nothing to dismay. Comfort and joys are ours in Christ. There are, there are tidings they're the tidings that's the old english word good news it's news of comfort and joy for us this christmas yes this christmas 2020 christmas what makes what makes the tidings the news of christ's birth a source of comfort and joy for us and that's kind of the the line of thought i want us through, to walk through this familiar passage in john 1 this culmination of, of John's prologue that's kind of giving us the theology of Christmas, uh, and not just the facts and the story of Christmas. And so, and I'm going to break it down in, in these two expressions that we see John says, and it's what we've seen and what we've received because of Christ's coming. What we've seen, we've seen his glory, his grace and truth. What we've received, grace upon grace, Alright, so we'll walk through those together. So first what we've seen. This is why we have this these these tidings are for our comfort and our joy. And first thing, what we've seen. Light has come into this darkened world, and those who have eyes of faith, they, they see, they've seen. We can see now. And so what have we seen now that the light has come? We've seen God that's the first thing and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the, the word again who was God and with God the second person of the trinity God the son condescended and entered this world as a real flesh and blood human being he became flesh it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be what he was before it's not like he dropped deity and took on humanity that's not at all what he means it's, instead he, to his eternal deity he added perfect humanity the God-man. He didn't cease to be God. He was God in flesh. We sang, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God incarnate. He, we've seen God when we've seen Jesus. But that's just the first part. He didn't just become flesh and then go right back to the Father. No, He became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. It means to pitch a tent, to, to tabernacle. Does that language sound familiar? It, John's pointing us back to the Old Testament, to that portable worship structure where, where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, and their wanderings, the tabernacle. There, there are... You, you're familiar with the phrase hyperlinks, and particularly those in that grew up in the digital age. You know all about hyperlinks. It's in when you're typing an email, or, or when you see an email, or something like that, and there's an underlined part, a word or phrase in it, and you click on that, and it sends you to a web page, or it sends you and opens some other document, something like that. It's, it's 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 taking you to another page, another place. Well, in this passage and throughout this gospel account, it's filled with these hyperlinks that are pointing back to the Old Testament, pointing back to to scriptures that have gone before and these texts and these truths. And so by using this word dwell or to tabernacle and connecting it with seeing Jesus' glory, John wants us to make this connection. As the tabernacle is a place where God dwelt with his people, manifested his glory in an even greater way. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen God. What an amazing, crazy thing. God's own Son, the eternal flesh, took on flesh and dwelt among us. What love for God to manifest Himself to sinners like us. Show himself to us. What love that the perfect, all powerful, all sufficient, sinless Son of God would subject himself to hunger and thirst and fatigue and, and, and temptation and injustice and cruelty and abuse and rejection and violence and exploitation and death. That he would willingly enter into our sorrows and become, as Scripture says, acquainted with our grief brothers and sisters, we, someone at the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus, the Word who became flesh, He is not aloof from you. He is, he is not distant from your suffering. He God draws near in the incarnation. God, Christ's birth is good news of great joy. It's consolation. It's comfort. Because when we've seen Christ, we've seen God. And so since, and this is the next thing, since Jesus reveals God to us, he also reveals his glory. And so we've seen, we've seen God, we've also seen glory. We've seen grace-filled and truth-filled glory. That's the second thing, verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, glory is a term that's reserved for God. It is is His weightiness. We could say His honor. It's the sum of all of His perfections and attributes. That's His glory. And so Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, he, He revealed, He showed us the glory of God. Now, it's not it's not that glory, God's glory was seen in the in the baby Jesus, you know, by some little like uh, ring around his angelic, you know, fairy dust or something like that, around his head, like the artist I know try to depict that. How do you how do you depict glory of a newborn child? That's that's not what it is, but but what it is in Jesus the glory of God was seen and, and the question is by whom? He says, We have seen his glory. Who's the we? I think, I think he's talking about the apostles in this case. The, is this is John and the other apostles the, and other believers who saw Jesus during his earthly life. And we, we see this borne out in the, in, in the rest of this gospel account. They, they saw Jesus' glory in, in his miracles that he performed, all those who had eyes to see it. And so in the very first miracle, John chapter 2, verse 11, it, G, this is Jesus turning the water into the wine at Cana there. And John says that in this, Jesus manifested his glory he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him uh, at the other end before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead he, he, he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it his glory was manifested in the transfiguration uh, certainly what's the climax of it though where's everything leading to It's the cross and resurrection of Christ. I mean, on on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as as Judas has has just left the disciples and left that gathering with Jesus, what does Jesus say? Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. This is Jesus. He reveals, He shows the glory of God. We've seen it in Christ. And it's the glory of the only Son from the Father. I just, this is another hyperlink that we don't have time to run down but this is just saying this is speaking to his uniqueness he's the son of God in the way that no one else is we, we are adopted children of God we talked about this last week but Jesus is innately in his very essence is this one of, one of a kind son of God son of the father and, 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 and eternally begotten of God and so what kind of and what does this glory look like what kind of glory was seen in Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, what does this say? It's glory that's full of grace and truth. <laughs> full of grace and truth. The, that, that, that phrase modifies glory. This is again another, one of those hyperlinks. Probably has in mind Exodus 33, 34. This is where Moses begs God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll, I will allow my goodness to pass before you and I'll, I'll proclaim my name to you. And so Moses stands on Mount Sinai and we're told in Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know what the... the, the new testament translation of that expression would be the greek translation grace and truth steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin i mean that pair of expressions covenant loyal steadfast love faithfulness truth that's found all over the new the old testament and then so john is again he's giving us this little hyperlink he's he's using this expression full of grace and truth to make the point that when we've seen what we've seen in the glory of jesus is revealed in his grace and truth The same glory Moses saw as the Lord passed by is the same glory John and others saw in the Word made flesh and it's it's manifested supremely in His grace and His truth. He's full of grace. Full of grace. He offers love and compassion for you and me, guilty sinners that we are. There is grace. There is grace for the guilt-laden, weary sinner today you come in weighed down by your sins, overcome with shame and guilt. There is grace. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. He is full of it. And there is grace for you, proud, self-righteous sinner who denies your very need for the grace. There's grace for you too, because no one is beyond the need for his grace. And he's full of, he's full of truth. Even, listen, even when we don't know what else is true in this life. And there's been a lot of uncertainty in our lives this past several months. But this is, this we can count on. Jesus, we can count on him. He's true. He's full of truth. All right, so in Jesus, we've, we've seen God, we've seen glory, and we've seen greatness. And in verse 15, there's this little inspired parentheses here. And it's, an, it's another reference to John the Baptist. And he says, John bore witness and he cried out concerning Jesus. He, this is what John did. He just went around blasting uh, and pointing people and speaking about Christ. And he says, he who comes after me ranks before me. He comes after. Jesus was six months younger than John the Baptist. John started his ministry before Jesus started his. And so, but with John's he's defying that kind of normal cultural view at that time and, and saying and that 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 view that said the older is the older man is always greater than the younger one. And see, so he's saying that's not the case here. No, 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 no. Jesus is by far the greater one. Why? Because he was before me. Jesus came after John. But he was before John. In fact, he wasn't just before John. He was before Elijah. He was before David. He was before Abraham. He was before Adam. He was before everybody. He was in the beginning. He was. And so in Jesus we see, we see true greatness. We see unrivaled preeminence. I want that brothers and sisters I I want to know that when I pray to the Lord he has no rival. There is no rival to his reign and his rule and and and, and so he's preeminent because he's preexistent and this is what Colossians 1 tells us and Paul writes to those that church to encourage these believers and said he, he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation by him all things were created in heaven and on earth all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together he's the beginning the, he's the head of the body the church the beginning the firstborn of the dead why that in everything he might be preeminent at first place for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, this is, I know it's been a dark year for some of you, and all of us in some ways, but remember what we've seen in Jesus. We, we, God has drawn near to us sinners. He's shown, he shows God to us. He has revealed his glory to us, glory that's manifested supremely in his grace and in his truth. Things we desperately need. He showed us his unmatched greatness. He has no rival, praise God. And so these, there, are, there are tidings of comfort and joy for us today because of what we've seen, but that's not all. And quickly, let's, let's see the second part. Because of what we've received, we have tidings of comfort and joy. What have we received? First, we've received grace. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, the way you just read, Colossians 1.19, the one in whom all of the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, or Colossians 2.9, God in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's this infinite fullness, the very fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And from that fountainhead of God's fullness in Christ, what happens? from that flows grace upon grace that's the imagery there are there are different interpretations of this verse of this phrase grace upon grace and we can't walk through all of those possibilities right now but the 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 most widely used greek lexicon and and it's kind of the gold standard for those who work in uh, the new testament languages but this is how they this is how they uh, say this this phrase should be understood And it's this it's that grace pours forth in ever new streams. That's good, isn't it? One commentator kind of elaborates on that. He denotes this perpetual and rapid succession of blessings, as though there were no interval between the interval of one blessing and the receipt of the next. It's grace upon grace upon grace after grace after grace. That's the idea. And so so you add that to the idea of Jesus' fullness, and John wants us to see that in Christ there is just so much grace. All we can ever need and more. It's an inexhaustible supply. Just a couple implications of that. One is this. We, listen, we can be satisfied in Christ because of the abundant supply of grace that he gives to us, we can be satisfied in him, even in hard, dark days. We don't ever have to lack anything if we draw upon what? His fullness, because it's inexhaustible. You'll never go to Jesus and find that he can't or won't meet or satisfy your true needs. He never stop going to him. Now the, the opposite of that, the converse of that is it's pointless to look to anything or anyone apart from Christ for grace. It's easy when problems come to, to turn to other things than Christ for relief, for comfort, for help. Whether it's alcohol or medication or food or shopping or entertainment or distractions or whatever it is. It could be wrong things or morally neutral things but when we look to something other than Christ it's, it's interesting to drink deeply of Jesus Christ rely on him be satisfied in him and I know that's easy to say it's another thing to actually actually do it and experience that isn't it because, because maybe you're thinking well I've tried that I've tried it, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't work I tried relying on Jesus but my problems didn't go away there's an example of that in in the New Testament of Paul trying that he had the thorn in the flesh he's asking God begging God we don't know exactly what it it was probably some kind of physical ailment it just wouldn't go away and he kept begging the Lord and this is and 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 this is when the Lord told him what he said my grace is sufficient my grace is enough for you for my power is made perfect in weakness whatever is going on in your life right now, and it may just be awful. It may be. You may not see a way out. You may feel like life is over. You may think hope is gone. You're not sure how to go on. Listen to Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you. The greatest need in your life right now is not the complete absence of a problem or problems that you're facing. The greatest need is in your life is the presence and experience of the all sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. And what you and I need most listen, He provides. He provides in never ending supply grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from His fullness. So we've received grace. Secondly, what have we received and what do we revel in that makes us such tidings of comfort and joy for us? We've received, we've received good news. We've received the gospel. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, this is another one of those hyperlinks here. They're more than I'm even drawing your attention to. But Exodus 34, when, when, when God called Moses back to Sinai to reveal his glory and he told Moses to, to cut those two stone tablets because Moses had gone down before and just, you know, broken them in anger as they're worshiping the, the golden calf. And so if that's the backdrop of this verse, then, then John's showing that as great as the law and Moses were, someone who actually embodies grace and truth now has tabernacled among us. And so John's saying, if you thought that God's gift of Moses and the law was great, and it was, he has given us a greater gift now through Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's drawing, I think, this contrast between the, the inferiority of the, the law and the, and the superiority of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. The law is good, but it cannot make us right with God. The law proves our guilt and makes us accountable to God, which is a good thing. The law gives us personal knowledge of sin, Romans 3, 19 and 20. The law shows us that we deserve God's wrath, Romans four fourteen. The law is a tutor and it prepares us for Christ, Galatians 4. But it can never justify a sinner. It can never move us closer to the Lord. It, we need the gospel. We need good tidings. We need the grace and truth that have come through Christ. Listen to how Augustine puts it. He says, The law threatened, not helped, commanded, not healed, showed but didn't take away our feebleness, but it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. So the gospel, this good news of salvation in Christ. This we sang this a moment ago, and I jotted it down real quick, uh, I digitally jotted it down in my notes here. Uh, born, born that man may no may no more may die. There we go. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth I mean this this is the gospel that the good news that now we who have believed have received in Christ and this is the gospel it's offered freely to you to all who would believe if you've not trusted in Christ and what he was born to do come to die for your sins come to rise again so that all who would trust in him could, could have this gift of life and light in Christ you can do that today make sure you've received God's gift of eternal life now, this, this time, do that even today. Talk to us, we'd love to share more about this. So we, we've received the gospel and third and finally. We've received greater revelation. This is verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now at first glance, if you're just reading this, it, it may kind of seem to come out of nowhere here. What, what, why would John so... Abruptly bring up the fact that no one's seen God before? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One, as you can guess, I think this is a hyperlink. <laughs> Taking us back again to Exodus 33 and 34. If, if that's in the background, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, how did God respond? He said, no man can see me and live. But also... Verse 18, it's it's, it's wrapping up this prologue in John's Gospel, verses 1 to 18, and and it's the other bookend of verse 1, how the whole section and how the book began. And so, we cannot know the invisible God unless God reveals himself to us, which he has done in the word Jesus. So the word who is the only son of God, the the one who was with God, who is in the bosom of the Father, at the Father's side, verse 18, he has made him known. He has explained him to us. No one has ever seen the essence of God in his unmitigated, unveiled glory. Those who who had visions of God in the Old Testament, they either saw Christ in his pre-incarnate state or they saw some obscured vision of God's glory around his throne. But now Jesus has revealed God to us. We have greater revelation. He is especially his abundant grace and truth. The only way you and I can know the Father is through Jesus' Son. His Son who is, look at the text, he's at the Father's side, in the bosom of the Father. Now don't just pass by that. That emphasizes close and intimate and unbroken fellowship that Jesus enjoy with the Father for all eternity. We've talked about that already in John 1. But why is that important? Because, because we know what's coming. What's coming. And, and this, is what, this is what the song, Born to Die. Born, born to die. This is why Christ came. He, he took on flesh so that that flesh might be offered up in our place on the cross for our sins. And so this Jesus who who was in the bosom of the Father, eternal, intimate, unbroken fellowship, didn't have to let go of that. He let it go, though. And he came into this world. And what does that do? It highlights the horror of the cross of Christ. Christ. And it highlights the love and mercy of God and and the willingness and his willingness to go to those lengths. So when he bore our sins, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What love. Listen, church, light has come into the dark. It is light and life in Christ. What a, what a gift to us who, who remain in a dark and death-filled world. We're not immune to those realities. Uh, going back to the opening illustration of, of from A Christmas Carol, it's not like the, the, the Christmas carol out there who's singing with merriment was oblivious to the cold and how, how that was gnawing and, and, and at, his, at his nose. No, no, no. He felt it. He wasn't in denial but there was something more there was something deeper something greater that overcome that reality and so listen we're still in darkness there's real darkness there's real trouble there's real difficulty now this is the hope though because the light has come we know that one day the darkness will be over this is not the end of the story this is not it Christmas is the, is the certain, it shows us the certainty that the end is coming. Darkness will be gone forever, and then only light from God himself for all eternity. Let me just tell you the end. Revelation 21, 23 and 25, this is speaking of the new Jerusalem and the, and, and the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal city. And he says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. It doesn't say that they're gone. It just says there's no need for it. It's overwhelmed by a greater light. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb but it's light by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day for there will be no night there Brothers and sisters, the the hope and what what is offered to us in saying that that the light is coming to the dark is not just a little temporary reprieve. No, it's the certainty that the Lord is with us even in our darkness now, but the Lamb who was slain guarantees that one day He will shine and there will be no darkness. That is our hope. and So we live as people of hope. We embrace these tidings of comfort and joy in the midst of in the midst of sorrows and difficulties, let's pray. I don't want to pray closing, using words that we've used before in, in these services, and from from um, an old prayer. O source of all good, what shall we give to you for the gift of gifts? Your own dear Son, begotten not created, a Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. His infinity of love, beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise us above. Was born like us that we might become like him. Herein is love. When we cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise us to himself. Herein is Power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreate and the created. Herein is wisdom, when we were undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost, as man to die our death to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for us. Oh God, take us in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge our minds. Let us hear good tidings of great joy and hearing, believe. Rejoice, praise, adore. Our consciences bathed in an ocean of repose our eyes uplifted to a reconciled father. Place us with ox, ass, camel, goat to look with them upon our Redeemer's face and in him account ourselves delivered from sin. Let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child to our hearts. Embrace him with undying faith exulting that he is ours and we are his. In him, You have given us so much that heaven can give no more. We pray in Christ's name, amen.